0: You know, I was saying the other night, we had our, Thursday night, we had our Christmas dinner, and it was it was great. I'm going to move baby Jesus here. There's no baby, but there's a lamb, so I guess that's, I don't want to trip on that. And so we had a lot of kids here, we did a lot of kids stuff, and it was really great to see that, and you know, we talked a little bit about seeing uh, Christmas through the eyes of a child, uh, and so as we send these kids off, it kind of reminded me of that, and you know, if you think about all the tragedies that are in the world today, all the hardest situations that you could imagine for people to be in in the world today, some of it might be you know extreme poverty, maybe that's a bad situation. And it certainly is. It's a hard one. Or maybe people that have really bad health problems, just plagued by a health problems. That's a bad situation too. But I, I don't know, maybe the worst situation in the world that you might find yourself in is to be a child in the world without a mother, without a father, without anyone who really loves you and cares for you. Maybe that's the hardest thing in the world to cope with. I read a story uh, the other day about a lady. Her name is Joyce Doherty. She's a member of a church in Louisville, Kentucky. And so like so many people nowadays, they travel overseas to orphanages to adopt. Adoption is um, a very Christian thing to do. It's a Christian mindset because we know we're all adopted. We'll talk more about that this morning. And so a lot of folks, because sometimes adoption is very difficult here in the States, they go overseas. I mean, some of you might have adopted your kids maybe from here in the States. Maybe I know folks that have adopted from Guatemala and China and Africa. And so this couple went to Ukraine and they saw a two-year-old girl named Kristen there. And the lady says that from the moment she saw this two-year-old, her beautiful blue eyes just caught her attention, but it framed the edges of a facial tumor. So you can imagine a two-year-old in an orphanage where there is you know, probably not a lot of love. She has no mother and father, and she's deformed to boot. Maybe that's the hardest thing in the world to cope with. But this woman, Joyce, uh, she just kind of plugged in with this little girl, and she said there was something special about that, tumor, that about her that tumor could not hide, and she knew she needed to adopt that little girl at that moment. And she said this about all those kids in the Ukraine, and I think this is very true about all orphanages in all areas of, of the country where life is not held as sacred as maybe we ha- have it here. She said those children are throwaways. Can you imagine saying that about kids? They're throwaways. Most Ukrainian families are afraid of a child with any kind of disability. Mothers take them to an orphanage or just abandon them in a public place, walk away, and never look back. So they adopted her. They brought her back to the States. They removed the tumor, and the scars are healing, and everything about this little girl, Kristen, has changed, and she chatters these words constantly. I love you, Mama. I love you, Mama. Now, as wonderful as that story is, I'm wondering if we were to look at the love that Joyce had for Kristen and imagine the love that she had to have in her heart as she wanted to adopt this little girl. And then imagine this, is her love any greater than God's love who wants to and has adopted us? Could the love that would go to the Ukraine and pull this little girl, deformity and all, into uh, a, a world where, where, where now she has a healthy home and a family and, and she's getting rid of her, her deformities. Could the love that that woman had be any greater than God's love for the children that he adopted? And I think that in our heads we would probably say, well, no. But we're going to check that in our hearts today as well. Because I think the love that Joyce had in her heart actually came from God. So with that in mind, I want to take you into a passage of scripture we're going to look at this morning as we talk about stories and hope at Christmas time. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, why don't you turn there and we'll pray and we'll get into God's word together. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time in your word. Your word is everything to us. You tell us that heaven and earth are going to pass away, but your word will always remain. And so we want to look at it this morning as we, as we investigate this idea of hope at Christmas, investigate this idea of your love for us, what it means at Christmas time. We want to hear the gospel loud and clear again today, Father. I want to hear the gospel of Jesus and how incredible it is and give you all the praise and glory as you change our hearts and minds through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we know Galatians is probably one of the first books of the Bible written around 52 A.D. or so. And why that's significant is because Paul, when he was writing this letter, there were still eyewitnesses around in the, in the world that had been around to see Jesus. And, uh, and maybe his mother Maybe he had been there at the crucifixion. Maybe he had seen Jesus risen in the days that he came back after the resurrection. So those kinds of eyewitnesses were available. This was also the time we know the Nero was emperor of Rome, so there was a lot of approaching persecution. And so Paul is looking back on the birth of Jesus in this passage, and he's given us a perspective on it that I think is a little bit unique as we approach this season. He's giving us his version of the, of the gospel, and what he sees as the significance of the Christian story. And really, the story that we're talking about today, you know, last week we talked about Zacharias and Elizabeth and the story of waiting and hope, and God never fails, and it's great. And uh, next week, we're going to look at the story of the shepherds and some of this awesome things that happened to them Christmas night. But today, we're going to look at us. This is a story about us, and what does Christmas mean to us Now, remember, the Apostle Paul is speaking primarily to a, to a Roman or to a Greek audience, not necessarily a Jewish audience. He's writing to the, in the area of Galatian in modern-day Turkey. So, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Let's start reading, and we'll stop, and we'll kind of look at this story as he unfails it. He's been talking about grace and our understanding of that. And he says, But when the fullness of the time came, in verse 4... And we talked about this last week, didn't we? That God had an appointed time for this event to happen. And all through the centuries, God had it marked on his calendar that the day was going to come when Jesus was going to come be born of a virgin. God had marked his calendar, and although Christmas might have seemed to take forever to the Jewish nation who were waiting for the Messiah to come, centuries and centuries, remember we talked about the Jews waiting faithfully, that remnant of the promise that God was going to bring a Messiah to bless the world for part of the Abrahamic promise, the covenant. So Paul says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, And we need to stop there just for a second. And remember that when Paul's talking about born of a woman, he probably, can't tell us for sure, but he probably, he could have opportunity to meet and talk with that woman, Mary. She was still around. So Paul may have very well talked with the people of this story. So this is not just a theological debate he's having, a discussion he's having. I think there's some real eyewitnesses out here that he would have talked to. We know he went to Jerusalem many times. So then he dips into the significance of the story. He says, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, understand when Jesus was born as a baby, as a Jewish male specifically, he was held accountable to the law of God. What does that mean? The Mosaic law, the covenant that Israel had been living under for many, many hundreds of years. You could even get more specific and say, well, maybe that's the Ten Commandments. Maybe it's the 632 that were found in, throughout the Old Testament. Whatever it is, there's the law of God, capital L, that Jesus was born under. And then look at this. He says, born under the law, verse 5, so, the, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Now, I need to stop for a minute and talk about that. First word to discuss, those. The word those. And we need to understand that those is not some kind of distant application to a group of Jewish people and it's all he's really talking about, I think we need to make a connection with them this morning. That when he says those under the law, although we are not living under the Mosaic law, at least I hope you're not. I hope you're not living according to the Ten Commandments, maybe as a guideline for practice, but not for salvation, I hope. And so we can make a connection with these folks and say, when he says redeem those who are under the law, we need to put ourselves in that category And we can because throughout Scripture we are all told from the very beginning that there is a law of God, not necessarily the Ten Commandments and all those written-down Mosaic laws. There's a law of God that every one of us has broken. Do you know that this morning? We've all broken some law of God. And here's the idea that goes with that. You see, we're all lawbreakers, and we're not very good law keepers. Now, you may think yourself as a very good law keeper. I would argue with that. And so we know that there are certain laws that we've all broken. We've all lied, probably all stolen something, probably all used some Lord's name in vain. Probably done something like that we could pull out of the Ten Commandments, if not in practice and certainly in, in, uh, in, in spirit. But here's the fact. We don't even keep our own laws very well. You know, January 1st is coming up. And those New Year's resolutions are coming up. And how many have we kept in the past that we've made? You know, there are some dieting laws maybe that we've made and some exercise laws that we made, and nobody imposed those laws upon us, right? We took those laws upon ourselves. And what did we do with those laws? We broke them because we're not very good lawkeepers; We're just not good at it. We came up with our own laws, and that January 1st at New Year's Resolution, that's maybe a a humorous side of that, but you know what? We do come up with our own laws and break them all the time. Some of you might have broken some parenting laws in the past that you established for yourselves. This is what it means to be a good mom or dad or parent, and then you break those laws. Some of you have broken some marriage laws in the past that you established for yourself. This is what it means to be a good husband or wife, and you end up breaking those laws. Some of you have maybe broken some honesty laws, some integrity laws for yourself. My point is this. We are all lawbreakers. Do you all see that this morning? Yeah, we've got to start there. We've got to start with that news because we need to hear the good news later on of the gospel, being for lawbreakers, those who can't keep the law of God. Not only have we broken the law of God, even if you don't believe in the law of God, you've broken something You've broken your own laws. We know what's right and what's wrong. And those of us who are Christians, we look at the scriptures for the authority of our lives. But those of you who have not taken that step yet, not placed yourself under the authority of scripture, realize this, that there are laws that you have broken, even your own, so you're a lawbreaker. We're all in the same barrel together. And here's the problem with that. Because when laws are broken, you know what that does? It sets up what what we would call a debt and debtor relationship to the person who you were supposed to hold that law to. Let me give you an example. Uh, Anybody drive on the freeway recently? Okay, what's the speed limit? 75. (laughs) He's making his own law over here. (laughs) Right? So now who agrees with, say, 65 on the highway? Who agrees with that? It's a good law. I do. It's a great law. Do you break it? Yeah. Yes. Why? Too it's too slow. <laughs> it's a good law for someone else, just not me. I like that. So, yes, we would agree. We don't want to raise the speed limit to... Now, now those of you who've been over, overseas, maybe in Europe, and you go to Germany, you go to Autobahn, what's the speed limit there? None. none. Nine. Yeah, nine. <laughs> exactly. Very good. That's clever. Now, none of us would probably say we like that speed limit... We've got to have some kind of limit somewhere. I, I, you know, in, there are parts of Texas where you can actually drive 75 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour. Do I hear 85? <laughs> so, we, but we know that there's got to be a cap on that somewhere, right? There's got to be some kind of speed limit, and we, we agree with that. And then when those flashing lights behind us show up, we're like, oh, man, I broke that law again. Ray right? takes your pictures. Somebody has experience in that, don't you? Here's the thing. A debt and debtor relationship is established when we break a law that someone has imposed on us, even ourselves. In other words, here's what happens when you do that. Someone has to say to you, you now owe us, you owe me something. Right? cop's going to give you a ticket and you're going to owe something because you broke that law traffic school fine something uh, you break other laws and there's penalties for those laws there's relational penalties that come with breaking a law between husbands and wives, between children and parents, between employers and employees. And throughout our lives, we experience this sense in which we broke a law and now we owe somebody something, right? Y'all with me? Now, perhaps you feel like your parents owe you something. Those of us or those of you who have had less than perfect parents, or your parents might have broken some parenting law with you. Maybe you believe your father owes you a childhood. Maybe your father owes you an education. Maybe you think your father owes it to, be, to you to be there for you when you were a child and so many fathers were not, me included. Maybe we feel that somehow our fathers have sinned against us, that he offended us, and he broke the law of the father. He broke the law of parenting, and you owe me, Dad. You ever feel like that? Sure. Maybe you're on the other side of that equation maybe you've got a child somewhere in the world that's estranged to you and if I were to hear their story you know they would say you know what you owe me a childhood you ought to be there for me you ought to tuck me in at bed at night you ought to me to tell me stories you ought to me to been at my football games and my baseball games and my soccer games and you weren't there and you owe me You owe it to me because when there is a sin, when the the law has been broken, there is immediately a debt and a debtor relationship that is established. And we've all experienced that in humanity. We've all experienced that in a relationship. All of us have. And here's the thing. Here's why I bring all this up. The Scripture tells us that the same thing happens to us, between us, and God when we break His law. There's a debt and debtor relationship. And when we break the law of God, it's created. And here's what Paul is saying. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Look at verse 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's what Paul is saying. Those of you who have sinned against God and broken his laws and created this debt and debtor relationship, now God says, you owe me something, according to the gospel, if you believe in Jesus and follow what he did for you, God says, you don't owe me anymore. That's the gospel, and that's good news. The word redeemed is a a word that kind of implies that there was something that was bought back. Sometimes we say that, right? God bought us back. Paid the price to get us back trade or whatever it is that that jesus came to redeem those who are under the law this is the gospel this is what christmas is really all about this is what paul is saying the significance of the christmas story is for you and me as fallen people who have broken the law of god and now oh god in this debt debtor relationship and there's absolutely no way you and i can pay god back and he says look you don't have And this is the gospel that was being spread in the first century, 52 A.D. This letter went around town. you imagine what happened when they read this? you imagine the minds that were being blown when they understood that God says, because of Jesus, you good with me? Jesus came and died on a cross, and it was the payment of the sin in that debt and debtor relationship that you owe me. He paid it all back. We sang that today, didn't we? Jesus paid it all. We sang that song. Did you realize that he really did pay a debt that you owed if you believe in Christ today? And it's kind of a strange concept. We sing about it. and Maybe we even talk about it. But, you know, if we were to wrap our heads around it, think about it. Today, right now, where you're sitting, you owe some people relationally relationally some things that you cannot pay back. You all know that, Right? You can't go back and be in that first marriage and fix that thing. You can't do that. You can't go back and be the father of the mother that you should have been to your kids when they were growing up. You can't go back and do that. That's just broken. There's no way to fix that. You can be sorry about it and repent for it and try and make up for it, but you can never go back and erase the time and go back and make it real and and, and reverse it. You can't do that. You can't go back and be a teenager again. Boy, I wish I could and be the kind of teenager that my parents deserved. I can't do that. I can't go back and give them the peace that they deserve because they were good parents. And I was just a rebel, prodigal child. Boy, I want to go back and fix that, but I can't. There are times that we owe people things that we cannot, we want to, but we just cannot pay back relationally. And in a similar way, what the scripture teaches us is that because we've broken the law of God, there's no way for us to pay God back either. No way. What he wants, you can't give. What he, does, what he requires, you can't give. Can't go back and undo what we've done. We can't go back and, and, and leave all the promises that we've fallen short of. We can't go back and fix those. But here's the scripture teaches, this is the gospel, that Jesus came into this world on Christmas so that he would grow up and and die for us on a cross, that we would be redeemed from the law. That's good news. That's hallelujah news at this time of year. That the law could no longer condemn us because even though we were lawbreakers, God and Jesus just sort of stood together as judge and jury that they have the right to be. And they said, even though you're absolutely guilty, you don't owe us anymore. So, just like we sang earlier, when Jesus died, he paid for that sin. Now that's not maybe new news for you. A lot of you, maybe you've, you've heard that before. You probably have, you've been in church. But see, that's only the beginning as we talk about the story of us. There's three parts I want to talk about today. The first part is that we're redeemed. And that's great news. We need to be redeemed because we cannot pay back what we owe God. But you know what? It's just the beginning of what Paul's getting to talk about. He's packed a lot of, of understanding into very few words. Because that redeemed word, right, it's transactional, right? It's transactional, some transaction that's happening. You know, Jesus is taking our sin and penalty, and he's giving us his righteousness, and it's imputed, and we use those big words, and and yeah, we kind of understand that, you know, in our heads a little bit, but it's kind of a legal, transactional kind of thing, and it kind of, you know what it does? It kind of leaves God as judge, doesn't it? It, 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 God is judged, but, but I'm forgiven. That's good, but that's kind of the picture we have of God at that moment. If that's all we were to say, we were to stop right there. You, you, you follow me? God's judge, We're forgiven. Thank you that we're forgiven. But it leaves me maybe feeling like I've gotten away with something. You ever feel like that? It's still a bit transactional, still a bit distant. Paul says that's just a warm-up to what God's going to tell you the gospel is about and that Christmas is about. Because when God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, there was an even more significant purpose than simply saying to me, okay, you're forgiven, you don't go to hell, you're forgiven, you can pray to me, you are forgiven, and I'm okay with you. There's more to it than that. The Apostle Paul says it was deeper than that. And so he reaches into his own culture, into his own time, to pull out this this analogy this illustration that you know we can't maybe fully appreciate because it lacks the word pictures for us, the metaphor, the idea that really describes what happened when Jesus came into the world to redeem those who were under the law. But look what he says here in the end of verse 5, so that we might receive the adoption, the adoption as sons. In other words... It's not enough from God's perspective that he sent Jesus into the world just to die, just so we could be forgiven when we accept his sacrifice and the the ledger is cleared with God. It's, It's more than that. As good as that is. Here's what God is saying. He's saying, I want more than that. I want a relationship with you. You know, you can forgive someone and never have a relationship with them. You know that, right? We've probably done that. Uh, you get that taf- traffic ticket, and maybe you go in and you, you, you plead your case, right? Like, I didn't see the sign. It was hidden by some trees. And somebody's laughing because you've used that one before, huh? Yeah. Sometimes it works. And the judge has pity on you, and he says, all right, this time we'll throw that out. Give me that ticket. Throws it out. You're forgiven. But you and that judge are not any closer, and are never going to get any closer than you are at that moment at that bench. Right. But that's not what God wants with us. Paul says, he says, as I look at the birth of Jesus, he says, as I reflect over the life of Jesus, as I've seen it and talked with these people, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, as I spend time with those people who knew him, who was around that situation. Paul says, I've come to discover that it's simply more than just forgiveness God is looking for. God wanted something else. He wanted a relationship with you. And he looks around his culture, Paul does, and he says, here's the way God wants to describe this. He wants to adopt you into his family. So we talk about being a family here. And it's not just because we meet here. It's not because we have dinner together. It's not because we like to do things together. We're a family because God says, I'm adopting you into my family. And I'm adopting you into my family. And I'm adopting you into my family. And once you're all adopted into my family, you're my family. And here's the thing. When we think about adoption, just as I was speaking in the introduction, as many of you are probably thinking of adoption, what do we usually think about as far as who's being adopted? little babies who wouldn't want to adopt those cute little babies even the ones that got the little tumors on them who wouldn't want to adopt a beautiful little baby precious right here's the problem when god saved me i don't know about you i was not a precious little baby i am still not an innocent little baby I'm all grown up. And here's what is so cool about this idea of adoption. In the first century Roman world, because that's who he's writing to, people who would be living in the Roman world, not Jewish people, no one adopted babies because babies died. No one adopted babies. Nobody wanted toddlers, probably because nobody knew what a toddler was going to turn out to be. Remember, in the Jewish world, they had a completely different way for, for taking care of children that had lost their parents. Completely different way. So the adoption wasn't even part of their culture. This is a Roman idea. And in the Roman world, people adopted adults. It's not to be getting good for you and me thinking about this. See, rich people in the Roman world, wealthy people, powerful people adopted adults as their children. And here's why. Let me give you some ideas, Right? Because the rich and the powerful looked at their own children and they thought, there's no way I'm leaving my stuff to that guy. Right? There's no way I'm leaving my stuff to those kids. I know what those kids are like. I've watched them grow up. I ain't trusting them with my stuff and my titles. No way. You remember, maybe they had political influence, right? Senators in in the Roman Senate, they looked at their own children and said, I can't even trust my own children. How can I leave my land and titles with them and so it was very very common in the roman world that you never adopted a baby you almost never adopted a child you adopted adults what's the most famous ones you can start thinking of julius caesar check this out when he was assassinated right they read his will and his and in his will they found out that he adopted this guy named octavian which was basically his grand nephew who was 19 years old at the time So, you know, here they imagine they're reading the will, and here's Octavian standing there amongst all the people, and the guy says, You know, Octavian, I've got some good news. Your uncle, your great uncle, he adopted you, and you now have all of Julius Caesar's titles, and all of his land, and all of his wealth. That's a good day for Octavian. And Octavian went on to become Augustus Caesar, or as we know him, Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor during the time of Jesus' birth. And Caesar Augustus, as he got older and older, he looked around. He had a daughter, and he couldn't leave everything to her. He had some grandchildren by her, and so he did adopt some of them just in case he wanted to leave them uh, in his will. But here's what he ended up doing. He ended up adopting his wife's son from a previous marriage. It wasn't even his child. It was his wife's child from a previous marriage, a man named Tiberius. And Tiberius was 40 years old when Caesar Augustus adopted him, 40 years old. Now, Tiberius ultimately became the next emperor, and anybody know what was going on when he was the emperor? You history buffs out there. What was happening there? Jesus was crucified during his reign as emperor. So here you have the bookends of Jesus' life. Caesar Augustus, who who was adopted by uh, Julius Caesar... And he becomes the emperor when Jesus is born. He adopts Tiberius, who is 40 years old, and he becomes the emperor when Jesus is crucified. Adoption's big in the culture, adoption's big in their thinking, but it's not adopting babies, it's adopting adults. So, that's how they did adoption. And I guess the bottom line is this. If, you're a, if you guys, some of you out there, if you have a lot of money and you have a lot of, a lot of means and, and you have significant resources and you don't really trust your children, I'm open to adoption. <laughs> I just want to let you know. If some of you are like on the fence with your kids, <laughs> I'm all over adoption. I love it. So when Paul wrote this, and his adult audience and his teenage audience and his senior audience read these words, this was something significant to them. And here's what it meant. It means that God looked at us at adults with all of our faults and all of our failures and all of our sins, knowing that in the Roman world, no one would touch us. But Paul says, "When God looked at you, and you're forgiven." and you're redeemed, and you're no longer a slave to the law, no no longer had this debt and debtor relationship that God, and in the nature of the relationship he wanted with you, he wanted to adopt you. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel? Knowing everything you had done. God knows everything you've done when he redeems you. He knows everything that's in your heart. He knows everything that you did do and everything that you could do. He knows all the promises that you broke to yourself, all the promises that you broke to others, all the promises that you've broken to your heavenly Father, and that you, if you're a believer, have been adopted even with all those that you've broken. Now, if you're not a believer this morning, we'll talk more about this too. If you're not a believer this morning, this invitation is going to be open to you. It's open to you right now. Not simply to be forgiven by God. Not simply to have things made right with God, but to be adopted into the family as a child of God. And when the Galatians read this, it was staggering. It took the idea of Christianity to a whole new level. Well, I understand it's being right with God. I've made sacrifices before to get right with God. I can kind of see where his sacrifice is better than mine. Okay, transactionally, I think I'm okay with that. But what, adopt me? Nobody does that. That's the level that God's love has for you. You know, I, can, I can imagine them reading, reading this, and they're saying, "You know, I've heard the story of his birth when the fullness of time came, born under uh, the law, born unto a woman. I've heard that story. Many of them would be reading this and saying, I've heard that. I've heard the story of the life of Jesus. Maybe they even spent time with Matthew and John, and they've heard of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But now they're reading this, and Paul's saying, I know what God's up to in the world. It's not just to make people right with him. It's to have a relationship with them. And the best way to describe that relationship is that you have been adopted in the family of God. But you know what? There's more. There's still more. Look at verse 6. Because now you are sons, right, adopted, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Bible says here's what happened. The Holy Spirit... The Spirit of God, when you're redeemed and adopted, has inhabited your heart forever. He says that's what connects you relationally to God, is God's Spirit that lives in your heart. And God, through His Spirit, has invited you into this relationship. And now, this is almost impossible for the Galatian readers to comprehend. It had to be difficult for, for Jesus' disciples to comprehend. This is something that's never been happened before. And and the Spirit inside of you calls out Abba, Father. And you've heard the stories about what that word means, right? The Aramaic word for Daddy. And it's translated directly from the Aramaic into the Greek because there's no Greek equivalent. They had words for Father. They had no words for Dad. So it had to be translated right from the Aramaic and left in here as Abba. It's an Aramaic word. And it's a word of extraordinary intimacy that you couldn't even comprehend or find in the Greek language. And the Galatian readers are just like, what is that? And so if you were to tell a story about what that is, you could could go back and say, okay, Jesus used this word. Actually, the first time it's ever used in Scripture. Anybody know where? Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the crucifixion. Remember the scene. Jesus is on his knees in the garden. He's praying, right? It's the night that he's going to be betrayed. It's the night they're going to come and drag him away into those awful trials all night long, that awful scourging, that awful pain it's going to start that process. He knows what's coming. He knows eventually he's going to be crucified. He knows the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, everybody's sin, is going to be put on his shoulders, and he's going to take the pain and the penalty for that in addition to the physical pain of being on the cross. And he's on his knees praying. And he says, remember the prayer, Father, let this pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. And the word he uses when he says, Father, is this word Abba. As if he was saying, and maybe it seems sacrilegious. Maybe the disciples aren't like, what are we hearing here? It may be difficult for you to embrace this morning that as Jesus prayed in that very intimate, very tender moment, that he's the first person ever recorded in Scripture to use this term related to God. No record of it before Jesus. And he says this, Dad, Dad, don't let this happen to me. Mm. Boy, if that doesn't tug at your heart, nothing will. Dad, don't let this happen. Somehow, somehow, let me escape this. There's got to be another way. And immediately, immediately, he says, no, there's not. I'll submit to your will. Imagine the disciples hearing Jesus on his knees over there praying, Abba, Father, Abba, Dad, Dad, Dad. Paul is saying that that same spirit of God has inhabited you, and now you can relate to God not simply as forgiver, not simply as judge, not as simply, okay, things are okay, you don't have to do that again. Uh, Not as simply master, but father. You can relate to him as Abba, Daddy, Father. How many of you pray that way? Daddy. Almost seems sacrilegious sometimes, doesn't it? We need to be a little more formal when we approach God. And yet Jesus said, Daddy, that's the level of intimacy you have with your father. Do you believe that this morning? That's the level of intimacy God wants to have with you. And why is this important? Because Paul says, and Paul thinks about Christmas, when he thinks about what happened at first Christmas, he says, God's son, born of a woman, he realizes that this is where it ultimately is going to lead. It's where you would call father in heaven, daddy. He says in verse seven, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Why does he say slave? Because in a slave relationship, it's all about Rules. It's all about here are five things you should do and four things you can't do. And the two places you should never go. And here's what happens if you go there. Here's what happens if you break the rules. And here's what you can expect if you don't submit to me. That's what slaves live out. That's their life, isn't it? That's how they live. Before God redeems us, that's our life. We may be a slave to sin, slave to unrighteousness. But Paul is saying that what God is telling us here is that we are no longer slaves. In other words, you're no longer relating to God through law. You've been redeemed from the law. You're no longer relating to God as a taskmaster. He's not a judge. He's not a rule keeper. You are no longer slaves. In any language or any prayers or any attitude that you have toward God that reflects slavery or a dictator or a judge, you need to move past that. That's not who God is anymore. So if that's how you're relating to God, is He's some taskmaster that's driving me and He's holding the things over me, and I got to re- respond to him and behave to get his approval. If that's where you are with God, what Paul is saying is that Christmas says that's no longer valid. That's not the right view of God. Christmas is about moving past that in your relationship with God, because you are God's children, and you've been invited to follow the example of your Savior as he addresses his fe- heavenly Father, and, and it's so uncomfortable, isn't it, sometimes? Dad. You and we and us together no longer relate to God, the lawgiver, but his father. No longer do we look at God through the lens of what we've done, but of who we are, his child. And that essentially is the Christmas message. It's this. God has sent his son so that you become his child. It's a Christmas message. God has sent his son so that you can become his. His child, God has sent his son so that you could become his child. What kind of child? An adult child who has been forgiven and accepted and redeemed regardless of what you have done. And now you're at this intimate level with God who, like your Savior, can call him Abba, Father. We talked last week about a song, O Holy Night. We're going to sing that Christmas Eve. In fact, we're going to sing a lot of carols on Christmas Eve. We're going to take several of them and we're going to pull out one line from each of them and we're going to see the gospel revealed in the carols that we sing at time. Isn't that going to be cool? And we're going to sing them together. We're going to sing the gospel through the carols that we're going to look at at Christmas Eve. So you want to make sure you be here and bring your friends, bring your family. So the French poet who penned the words to the song we now sing, O Holy Night, he, he got it right. Listen to that. He looked at the first line. He wrote, long lay the world in sin and error pining. We talked about that last week, right? Just waiting, forever waiting till he appeared. And now this next one, which we've sung a thousand times, but maybe for the first time in true significance, it will dawn on you, and the soul felt its worth. Those words in that song, when we sing that Christmas Eve, we're going to bring that up again. The soul felt its worth. Because we're now relating to God as Father. We're adopted. He's our dad. What do you think you're worth to God? What do you think you're worth to God this morning, this Christmas season? I don't really know how a lot of you view God. Some of you I've talked with, but not all of you, for sure. I don't really know how many of you pray. You may still pray as a slave. You may still pray as a slave, looking for God to approve you through the things that you do or don't do. You may still be a law keeper, thinking that's how God gets your approval or his approval from you. You may still pray to God as a judge. You may still barter with God. If I do this, then you'll do that. If you just get me out of here, you know, I'll do three things like that. If you just get me out of this, how many of us have done that? You know, God, I, God I, I, did, I did this last weekend and, and I'm going to go to church for three weekends and make up for that, right? How many of us have done that? You know, when I was 16, I did this and I still can't get that out of my head, God. And, and I'm going to do this just to make sure you've forgiven me for that. How many of us are there? If you're still bartering with God, did you know you're still relating to God as a slave? Did you know you're still relating to God as a, as a, as a law keeper and a law breaker that you're still transactional with God. If you're bartering with God, then you don't really know what Christmas is all about. Because God has invited you into something far more powerful, far more wonderful than just being made right through transactions. He's saying this, you are my child, and I am your Abba. I am your father, and that is the foundation of a relationship. And so God is saying, you want to know what you're worth to me? Here's what God is saying. You are worth more to me than every adopted child that has ever been adopted by a human being all put together. you believe that? Can you believe that? Wow. Double wow. All the kids who have ever been adopted by anybody in this world since time began, God says, you are more important to me than all of them put together. God does love me that much. You want to know what you're worth to God. Christmas is about God sending His Son into the world so that we can become His children. And you're worth Christmas. You want to know what you're worth to God? You're worth Christmas. Mm. You're worth Christmas. Wow. You're worth Christmas. Here's what you're worth to God. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. It's amazing. It's amazing. If it ever gets from here to here, it'll blow your mind. It'll blow your life apart. If you could ever get those thoughts out of here and into here, it'll wreck everything you think about your Christianity. It will change the way you pray. It will change the way you respond to temptation. It will change the way you respond to your own failures. It will change the way you view the people around you. It will change the way you view yourself. And regardless of what other people have said to you or the way other people have treated you, it will transition or change or radically change your sense of worth because you know it comes from God the Father who says you're worth more to me than anybody else. All the other adoptions put together, you're worth more to me than that. Do you feel that today in your relationship? If you don't, then this season, get this right with God. Because you know what you're worth? I'll say it again. You're worth Christmas. You're worth God sending his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. But you know what? That was just a warm-up so that we could be adopted as children of Almighty God. And some of you may not have agreed to that adoption this morning. And there's an invitation there. Maybe for the first time you're starting to understand that. And there's no better season I can think of to say yes to that invitation to be adopted as God's children than Christmas because Christmas is what you're worth. And so we're going to conclude this morning, and I don't do this very often. I think it's always in the background, but I don't make it official and formal very often. We're going to do an invitation this morning. And this morning, I want you to take an opportunity. Not that you have to get up and come and talk to me or Pastor Howard or, or Robert they will be here. You don't have to come and talk to us. But if there's something that you need to get right with God this morning, maybe for the first time or another time, then do that this morning. Because this morning, even if you leave here and you get in the car on the way to go home, just tell God, I'm getting with you. I'm getting in with you in this car to go home and I'm leaving this life of law-keeping and law-breaking, I want a different kind of relationship with you. So for some of you, maybe you've been easing up to this. Some of you, maybe you've been working your way up to this. You've been coming to church for a while, maybe here, maybe other places. You've been listening online to things. Maybe you've been reading your Bible. But there's never been a moment when you said, yes, I say yes to your invitation to become your child, God, and to live in the grace of that moment. There's maybe never been a time where you've actually said, I'm going to call you my Abba Father. That's the way I'm going to relate to you from now on. And if there's never been a moment for you like that, then I'm going to give you the opportunity this morning to do that. Scripture teaches that when we place our faith in Christ and we did on the cross on our behalf, when we say, God, I believe when Jesus died and redeemed me and set things right with you that so you could adopt me, that we become born again, become a Christian. That's what it is. And becoming a Christian is simply declaring your faith in this this uh, theological and historical reality. And when you say yes, and when you place your faith in what Christ has done for you on your behalf, the Bible says you're born again and become a child of God. And if you're never sure that you've made that decision, again, I don't do this very often. You don't have to come up here. I hope you do, but if you don't, sit in your seats and have this conversation with God. I want to give you an opportunity to make that decision right now. So... Blair and Micah, why do you guys come back up? They're going to play a song. We're going to sit right here. We're going to bow our heads. Y'all bow your heads right now.